what's up everyone it's invest diva and your coach kiana daniel welcome to diva on the block where we take you to the back streets of this whole blockchain bitcoin and crypto shenanigans to help you get a better understanding of what really is going on and how you can take advantage of it today oh my god i'm so excited we have the legendary charles hoskinson as my guest you may know him as the co-founder of ethereum but he's also the ceo and founder of one of my favorite cryptos cardano as well as iohk in this interview we chatted about the most important components of cryptocurrency how Cardano is making a difference in the world, what is the future of Bitcoin and the cryptocurrency industry as a whole, and is it feasible that Bitcoin will be worth $1 million by 2021? As some of my previous guests, John McAfee has predicted, I had so much fun chatting with Charles and I hope you love it. Let's rock the block. Like doctors. And, uh, oh, that is cute. I have this anti over here. These are actually really fun to make. So what you do is you pour molten aluminum into an anti, and then uh, you dig it out. And this is the cast of what an, a fire anti actually looks like when you get sucked. All right. I literally have no idea what you just. Ants. <laughs> they dig out an anti. What you do is you take molten aluminum, you pour it into the anti, and then you dig it out. Oh my this goodness. Is this is what forms. That is so neat. But doesn't it kill the ants? Yeah, it's basically a tomb for about a million ants. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's what AI is going to do with humans in the future. So. Uh. <laughs> right. Well, they're, they're, they were an invasive species of fire ants that weren't supposed to be there. And we, had to get rid of we decided just to uh, turn, turn their, their hive into a monument to complexity. Uh, all right. Well, I mean, that is amazing. That is definitely something that needs to be in your office because, oh my God, like you are basically, I'm obviously going to do an intro here, but you are the founder of IOHK. You are the co-founder of Ethereum. You're the founder, co-founder of Cardano. Like you are literally everything. So I'm going to start just let's start from the very beginning. You started out actually at the university of Colorado at, as a mathematics and cryptography major in 2008, is that correct? So I started off actually uh, at Metro State, and after I finished there, because I studied math there, I went to see Boulder, and my hope was to get a PhD in mathematics. And I studied pure mathematics, so I was interested in a field of math called analytic number theory. Uh, so I wasn't a particularly good mathematician, and you know, I was much more interested in, uh, in computer science and a variety of other things. And so I decided to go into consulting for a bit. And I've worked at a variety of different interesting firms, which were quite colorful, some government, some not government. Uh, and then somewhere along the way, I said, wow, this cryptocurrency stuff is super interesting. So I should, I should do something in that. But I didn't know anybody. I didn't know how to do anything in the space. And so I talked to an old friend of mine who was a professor. And he said, well, Charles, those who cannot do teach. So that's a good idea. So I have no skills. Oh, no man. <laughs> that this is me. <laughs> that's not me. <laughs> created a Udemy course called Bitcoin or how I learned to stop worrying and love crypto. And uh, basically it was an introductory course on the Bitcoin. And I ended up getting well over 50,000 students. I, I think at this point it's maybe 80,000 who have registered for that class. And I got thousands and thousands of emails. And uh, from those emails, I met tons of interesting people from Andreas Antonopoulos to Roger Ver, Eric Voorhees. And at the time nobody was famous. So we, we, we all didn't have the egos. Uh, so we could talk to each other without any issues. And as a result, uh, it gave me uh, kind of an opportunity to do whatever I wanted to do within the cryptocurrency space. And one of my students in particular was a VC guy in China named Li Shailao, and he gave me half a million dollars to go start a company called Invictus Innovations, which ironically I co-founded with, of all people, Dan Larimer. Uh, so, uh, so Dan and I created this product called BitShares, and it was modestly successful, but it taught me how to build a cryptocurrency. And then shortly thereafter- so This is 2011, right? 2013 is when I got the money to, to start. Uh, but I've been in the cryptocurrency space since 2011 off and on, but uh, it was kind of a private affair. I was a miner and uh, I bought Bitcoin and these things. And so I had a lot of Bitcoin, but uh, I never thought it was going to go anywhere. You know, I said, oh, yeah, it's a fun little toy and play thing. And I love the philosophy and, you know, kind of aligns with Austrian economics and, you know, gold back money and these types of things. 
But that's all I know is crazy. The government will shut us all down and throw us all in jail and things like that. But that's it never did. Exactly. That's like literally, I got introduced to Bitcoin in 2011 as well. I was like, I was a little bit more skeptical. I was like, I'm not going to touch this. I'm going to leave it off. So that is why I did not have any Bitcoin in 2011. Even though my friends were telling me to buy, I'm like, eh. Uh, maybe I'll buy something else. So of course I was kicking myself in 2017. Like, yeah, I should have got involved earlier. But let's talk about how you actually started getting involved with Ethereum because mm -hmm. that is a big deal. At the time it wasn't. We were just a bunch of guys over the internet. Uh, so what happened was that Dan and I couldn't get along and I took a buyout for uh, Invictus Innovations and I was kind of free and I was trying to decide what should I do? Should I go back into mathematics? Should I you know, go ahead and uh, do some new project in the cryptocurrency space? Should I do a new company that's outside of the space? Right around the same time, I'd been talking to Anthony Diorio and Anthony uh, ran the Bitcoin Alliance of Canada and he said, hey, I, I really love your course. Can you create some educational content for us? And I said, oh, that sounds like a really fun thing to do. Yeah, let's do that. So I started working with Anthony and uh, right around the same time, Anthony was talking to Vitalik because Vitalik was like 19 at the time or something like that. And he uh, was going into Anthony's Bitcoin meetup group in Toronto. And so he said, hey, there's this young kid and he's got this white paper and I'd love for you to read it and let me know what you think about it. And I said, sure, I'll take a look at it. So I read the paper. It was a very preliminary paper. I think it was like an overlay protocol on PrimeCoin. So it wasn't a very significant thing, but there was a hints of brilliance there. And I, and I remember seeing these elements in other projects like the NXT automated transactions ideas that came a little bit later, but the people behind that had these ideas and Circular Learner also had this idea and Florin Coin I think was another. And so I said, there's some good stuff here. And I think if you guys want to build a product, you could definitely do that. So what do you want to do? And Anthony told me, well, we're having these meetings on Skype uh, it wanted to join them. So I joined it and there was four other people in the meeting. Uh, Amir Shatrit, Anthony Diorio, Vitalik, and Mihai Alicia. So I was the fifth person in the meeting. And uh, we also at the same time had these Skype groups and there was maybe a hundred people, 50 people, not a lot of people in them. And there was basically just like a fan club around this Ethereum idea that uh, Vitalik had come up with. So at some point Anthony put his foot down and said, look, we're growing too quickly. There's a lot of ideas. There's tons of people. I don't know any of you except for Vitalik. How about we just all meet up and see if we like each other or if we're assholes and we can't get along? I said, that's, that's probably a good idea, Anthony. Let's do that. Where should we do it? He said, well, Vitalik and I are speaking down at the North American Bitcoin Conference. And this was around January of 2014. It was Mo Levin's conference. And he said, well, you know, Mo could probably get us all speaking roles. Why don't we rent a beach house, fly down, and if we like each other, start something. I said, okay. So I flew down to Miami on my dime. A lot of people did. I think 20, 30 people eventually stayed in that uh, beach house and we spent a whole week together and at the back end of it, we decided let's go do something crazy. And I took over the business side for the first six months. And what I did is I structured basically the ICO and um, how we were gonna raise money and how, operationally what it would look like. Uh, and then Vitalik, Gavin Wood and um, Jeff Wilchie got together and they, they worked on the technology side. Jeff did the Go client, Gavin did the yellow paper and the C++ client, and Vitalik kept iterating and improving the overall idea. And then Joe Lubin and Anthony were kind of financial backers and Mihai helped me with the, uh, with the structuring of the entity. We, we built live in Switzerland for a little bit. And after we got everything set up, we kind of had to make a decision whether we wanted to be like Ripple and be a for-profit entity building a protocol or if we wanted to be more like a foundation. And I strongly favored a for-profit entity because I felt that all the founders would leave to the wind if we didn't have incentives to stay, uh, whereas others favored a not-for-profit. Eventually, a decision was made in June of 2014 to do the not-for-profit. I left and uh, eventually Joe left and I think seven of the eight founders have left now and gone to do other things. The only one that stayed was Vitalik and he's still at the foundation. Do you regret but, you know, leaving? No, no, not at all. I, you, know, you know, it was mutual. Uh, you know, there was really no place for me and I wanted to build something and I ended up building that with IOHK. You know, uh, about six months later, I started this company and we have about 200 people now. We have a huge science division. We've written over 40 academic papers, 20 year peer reviewed. We released Cardano. We have other products in the pipeline. We do enterprise contracting. We're in Ethiopia, Georgia, Mongolia. I've been to 52 countries in the last five years. And uh, I've had just amazing experiences from being out in the badlands of Mongolia, watching wild horses run by to hanging out with heads of state and kings and uh, all kinds of interesting people. And 
the science we've done here at uh, IOHK is, I think, the most advanced in our space, and the engineering we've done here is the most advanced. So, while so here, let, let's back up. Let's see. So uh, Cardano and Ethereum actually mark two of my favorite cryptocurrencies. So can you actually back up a little bit and tell us how is this new project that you took on different than Ethereum and Bitcoin, and why is it important? Sure. So I look in terms of generations, I think that's the easiest way of explaining it. So, you know, every generation tries to solve a problem. And if you try to solve too much, you're never going to succeed. And so you kind of have to wait for things to mature. So when Bitcoin came out, there were enormous amount of things that Satoshi could do. But he said, look, if I'm going to succeed, I, I have to keep it simple. So he could have tried smart contracts and a governance on-chain system and trying to be interoperable with the legacy financial system. But, you know, that's just too much. So he said, let's just figure out this proof of work thing and see if we can build a distributed ledger that people actually buy these tokens for money. That alone is like a huge deal. And for the first five years, it wasn't clear until around 2013. And then people actually started taking it seriously. That was the bellwether year for Bitcoin. But then shortly after people took Bitcoin seriously, they said, hang on a second here, Bitcoin's blind, deaf, and dumb. You can't really do much with it. It's a payment system, but it only does push payments. Transactions aren't automated. There's no notion of a smart contract. So we really need programmability with the ledger. So that was the second big problem. And just adding that to your system introduces an enormous amount of complexity and a lot of things that can go wrong, as we've seen with the DAO hack and the parity bugs and these types of things. So Ethereum really tried to solve that problem and it in many ways introduced it, but by no means has, is the final say. There's a lot more to do. And the problem is that they don't really have scale. You know, if, the, if you put a moderately successful application on Ethereum, it clogs up the entire network. Second, Ethereum still doesn't play nice with other cryptocurrencies or legacy financial systems, so it doesn't really have interoperability and it's really difficult to achieve that. And then finally, there still is a governance gap. So when we have difficult decisions like the DAO fork, do we fork or not fork, or how should we upgrade, there's kind of this out-of-band meta process, but it still requires key people like Vitalik to be curated or key things like the Ethereum Foundation to work. And if these are ever to truly be decentralized, you, you need some notion of sustainable governance that is divorced from particular leaders or people who have money. For Wait, the so time, isn't Cardano, is Cardano IOHA, is it for-profit or is it not? So uh, my company is a for-profit company, but we work on not for we work on open source software. So like Red Hat works on Linux, or uh, for example, Google works on Android. Android's an open source project. And so Samsung can use it just as well as any other company. So if you're so, talking about a decentralized, completely decentralized uh, project or blockchain or a cryptocurrency that is not run by people, wouldn't still Bitcoin be the one that it, like, we don't even know who the founder is? Right. Like, wouldn't it kind of defeat the purpose of this decentralized cryptocurrency if it is run on a for-profit company? There's no for-profit company running uh, Cardano. Uh, again, it's an open source protocol. Anyone can use it. Uh, it but is I, it in I'm, your benefit if people use Cardano? Well, yeah, because I own some of the tokens, but that's the same case for that's the Ethereum right. Foundation as a not-for-profit. They own a percentage of the supply as well, and uh, anybody who takes a position. But these are open protocols. They're open source. They're permissionless. Anyone can use them. There's no fees to use them outside of perhaps using the token for certain applications. And those economics are the same regardless if it's Ethereum or EOS or Cardano or Bitcoin in that respect. My point is that you have a collective action problem. So these protocols require a future. People have to pay to maintain them. People have to make decisions of how to upgrade the protocols over time. So who does that? And ordinarily, when you think of products, you tend to think of custodians of those products. For example, uh, you know, the iPhone to Apple or Windows to Microsoft or Android to Google. And now we're moving to a future, whether it be Bitcoin, Ethereum, or Cardano, where we all have the same common problem, which is there needs to be a way of taking care of these things, even if Vitalik goes away or Charles Hoskinson retires and goes fishing or IOHK, one of the custodial companies goes out of business or something like that, or else nobody's going to want to invest in this infrastructure and build on this infrastructure because they don't know if it has a certain future or not. So they just simply won't use it. So this is kind of the hardest of all the three problems in scope for Cardano. You know, we view Cardano as kind of the third generation and we say, moving beyond Ethereum, you have to do everything Bitcoin does, everything Ethereum does, but then you also have to scale to millions of users, have to talk to the hundreds of systems out there, and then finally have a coherent way of governing all of this, paying for the development, paying for the upgrades of the system, 
to whoever does that and then making decisions of where you want to go and how are you going to upgrade it. It's a real hard problem and it kind of justifies lots of R&D and experimentation and so forth. The other problem with these systems is if they become very successful, like Bitcoin, for example, they tend to move slower. Uh, and the reason being is there's just too much value at risk. If you're a Bitcoin core developer and you live in the Bitcoin ecosystem, you say, yes, we can add smart contracts, but we have $100 billion at risk. And if we screw it up, we could potentially damage the entire cryptocurrency movement. So let's be very, very conservative and move very slowly. So what does it mean? It means you get features in the time horizon of years to decades, whereas when you're building new projects, you have the liberty to actually move very quickly and experiment with things and make mistakes. And if it doesn't work out, well, okay, it hurts a, a few constituencies, but it, it's not an existential risk to our entire industry. So there's kind of a there's kind of a speed differential there, and this is why you always have to innovate. So what is next for Gardner? Actually, can you tell us about the development of the blockchain protocol and Cardano and Atalara? Sure. So Cardano is sort of like a DARPA project. So we 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 were very aspirational. We, DARPA projects are always, by definition, high risk, high return. And uh, basically, when you look at it from that lens, you say there's these big things we want to do, like scalability and interoperability and sustainability. Okay, and they're huge things, and they require enormous amounts of research and a lot of deep thought. But big ideas aren't a product, and they're not useful to anybody. So the first part of our development when we started in 2015 was going from big ideas to kind of a, a scientific research path where we could actually winnow our way down to real-life protocols which were practical and implemented. So for the first two years of the project, it was just a huge amount of R&D. You know, 2015, 2016 was just all setting up a research agenda and getting good scientists behind us. And then we built a small army of scientists. We have about 25 PhDs working at our company. And then we have a whole network of professors that, uh, from over 10 universities that we co-author papers with. And they wrote up this huge body of scientific knowledge and it was very first principles based. So we said, we assume cryptocurrencies don't exist and we wanted to build something like a cryptocurrency. What is a ledger? So what is a blockchain? What is, what is a mathematically precise definition of that? We wrote a paper about that. And then, you know, how does a programming language work for smart contracts? You know, what should that look like? And then what should a consensus protocol look like? Forget proof of work, proof of stake. What are the properties that a protocol would be uh, that, that we'd like to have and what would allow that to become maximally decentralized? So that's kind of the starting point. And then we started getting answers to those particular questions. And then from there, we had to develop an opinion. We had to say, okay, well, we can do 900 things, but we, you know, no, nothing ever succeeds when you can do 900 things. You only do one thing, right? So the next two years of the project, we're basically winnowing our way down to a point where we actually had a clear crystal roadmap. And uh, that's where we ended up in 2017, 2018, where we said, okay, we now have a product. We can launch something, get people on board, socialize it, and tell them about kind of our aspirations, where we want to go in scalability, where we want to go in interoperability, and where we want to go with sustainability. And now where we're at, we're just about to decentralize the entire system. So we've been running in a federated mode, similar to how Ripple runs, and we're just about to turn on Ouroboros, which is a protocol we spent over four years researching and developing, and it's a peer-reviewed, provably secure, proof-of-stake protocol. And we feel it's going to be probably the most decentralized cryptocurrency in the market long-term because of the innovations we have there. Instead of having a small group of actors control it, thousands of stake pools can control it. Anybody can easily delegate their stake. And then a whole ecosystem of decentralized services from data feeds to random number generation to other things can come from that collective set. And there's an incentive to have the system decentralized more and more over time. And when we turn on Hydra, which is the last protocol of Workhorse, we'll actually get faster as we get more people running the system as opposed to slower. So it has all those properties for scalability, and that's, that's where we're currently at, you know, basically just about to turn that on. Then the next thing we're going to turn on after that is smart contracts, and that come, came from another four years of research. We actually hired the creator of the Haskell programming language along with a cadre of other really brilliant people and had strange conversations about things like system F omega and other things that are difficult to pronounce and think about. And we've gotten to a point where we've imagined a completely new way of doing smart contracts. You see problem with smart contracts right now is they tend to live in their own little world and they pretend like the rest of the world doesn't exist. And so when you start off with an idea like, I want to build a decentralized Uber, you go and write it in Solidity and deploy it on Ethereum, and then you realize, oh my God, it's a thousand times too slow and a thousand times too expensive to be a real business. So then you say, oh, well, I'll just pull half of it and have it live on centralized servers that I control. 
okay. And then you have to build this bridge to have those, that infrastructure talk to the Ethereum infrastructure. And it's just a mess. It's not really secure. It's not performant. And it's difficult to get high quality. And then usually you end up losing all the benefits of being on Ethereum somewhere in that process. The way we designed smart contracts for Cardano, we said, let's make provisions for the things that live outside of the system and the things that live inside of the system and make sure that they understand each other and communicate with each other. And you can have a single source base for that. So we designed languages like Plutus and Marlowe specifically for that. So there's a lot of innovations we'll turn on there. And then we'll turn on the scalability stuff. And then finally, the last phase of the project is called Voltaire, where we turn on the governance components. And that's where we have a treasury and a voting system and a well-defined improvement proposal process. And we can kind of put like a democracy to the system and let people decide who want to run it and how they're going to run it and what they're going to pay for. So, so if you were to describe Cardano, no, yeah, that was, I mean, information is key. Like, I know that some people were like, oh, my God, what are these terms that you just threw out? And they might get turned off. So I do want to deliver to those people. If you were to describe Cardano in one sentence, what would that be? Our goal is to build Cardano as a financial operating system uh, for the developing world. That's always been our mission. You know, it's one thing to build infrastructure, and this is decentralized infrastructure, so it lives everywhere. But then you always have to ask yourself, well, who is it useful to? And we say, look, uh, at the end of the day, we're in Africa, we're in Asia, we're in all these places. There's 3 billion people who are unbanked and they pay enormous fees to try to get access to the, to the services you and I take for uh, granted. And it, it's not good enough just to build a payment system or a stable currency or these things. You have to think about an entire grouping of infrastructure, everything from how they vote to where their property lives to how compliance is going to work to how securities are going to work. So stocks and bonds and commodities, these types of things. Uh, to being able to basically bring elements of their business into a system. So that is something that actually really resonates to me. The reason why I get, became fascinated with cryptocurrency is the developing world. I am originally from Iran, and in 1979, the new Iranian regime took over all of my dad assets. It was a successful CEO who had a ton of stuff. The new re regime took over everything, froze his bank accounts, and I grew up in poverty as a result, result of that. Years later in 2016, when I was reading about blockchain, crypto, and all this, I was like, oh my God, if my dad had just a fraction of his assets in crypto, the, <laughs> the government would not have been able right. to access it. So I was like, oh my God, this is so powerful. And I, I really appreciate the fact that you actually do take notice. And it is a fact that a lot of people in first world countries, like in America, don't take for granted, but you never know what's going to happen. All the great empires fall. So, and I do appreciate the fact that you do take notice of this. My, my question for you is that, all right, um, there is another company who is trying to get into that uh, and become more peer-to-peer -peer and give access to all the data that they own, and that is Facebook, who came up with Libra. Right. What do you think of that? Well, you know, it's an interesting thing. They're a huge player. They have billions of customers. And, you know, it's from one perspective, it's nice to have somebody come into the space of their clout and stature because it legitimizes what we're trying to do. And it gives us a different way of thinking about everything. And uh, from the other side, my belief is the only way to be successful is to not have a curator, not have a king. You cannot have someone at the top of the pyramid lording over everyone. So if Facebook designs it with our principles, then if they win in the end, then we all win as customers. If they design it without our principles, I don't think that they can succeed long-term. You know, the other thing is that they've introduced a quite a bit of regulatory scrutiny. I mean, Trump and the Treasury Secretary weren't talking about crypto and then Libra comes out, now they are. Uh, so it, it creates some complexity in our industry where we as an industry now have to fight for things that we weren't so worried about before. Uh, for example, uh, you know, do we need money transmission licenses or you know, is certain things a security or not a security? Now that the Treasury Department's paying attention to the industry due to Facebook, it could introduce bad regulation that we're going to have to work our way through, both in the United States and, unfortunately, because the U.S. is so powerful uh, through global standards. In fact, we've already seen an output of this, for example, the FATF guidelines that came out. and uh, Their implications on uh, cryptocurrency compliance are a bit puzzling. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's a mixed bag with all things. But, you know, the other thing is the success of Facebook will be a key indicator for other larger companies to come in, for example, Amazon in Google and Apple, uh, who all have common problems. The reason why these companies want these things to exist is that they're just the same as anyone else. They're at the mercy of banks and payment processors and as global businesses, billions of dollars of profit leak out into this industry. Whereas if they control the platform, 
uh, they would save billions of dollars and have a more direct financial relationship with their customer. And they've run these massive platforms, whether it be Android or Windows or the Amazon Marketplace. And as a consequence, if they were able to get these systems in, uh, they, they, they think they can have great business models and outcompete these, uh, out these other guys. So if Facebook doesn't get burned to the ground as a result of Libra, I think there's a very strong possibility that it's going to get the rest of GAFA and Microsoft into the game as well. And then suddenly we now have competitors who aren't just uh, people who like cat bags and uh, have the kooky Austrian economics background. We actually have multi billion dollar, perhaps trillion dollar companies that are very aggressive with billions of customers. In Does, doesn't that defeat the purpose of crypto, in your opinion? It depends. If, if they have our principles and they're decentralized protocols and they're open source, uh, you know, that's good for everybody. But if they're centralized and monopolistic and they have toll roads and curators uh, and middlemen, uh, then it does. And so it just, uh, it just depends on how they bring things. Have we you use... reached out to Facebook or have they reached out to you to learn about your white paper and principles? Well, we've talked to every one of the GAFA. Um, we've talked to Microsoft as well. And, you know, we've, we've had a great time uh, talking to their engineers and we get invited all the time to go to their, their innovation hubs or their science labs. In fact, a lot of times we poach people from these companies. For example, we've stolen more than one scientist from the Cambridge Research Lab at you Microsoft. Coach the companies, even poach. though they can be competitors. Uh, poach, meaning we, oh. we actually okay. we actually hired we actually hired some of their scientists for certain things okay. we do. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, that's yeah. better. <laughs> um, and, uh, and they they of course love us for that, but uh, that's that's what happens when you're a large company. You always uh, right. you always some of your people. Uh, that's great. Uh, but, you know, they build technology that we tend to use. For example, we use gRPC and you know, other things in certain parts of our tech, and that came from Google. Uh, and so it's, it's nice when there's a component they've built we can take. And if we build something, everything we build is open source. They're free to use it and take it as well. And it's, it's all one village. Uh, but, you know, uh, the, the research labs are very friendly at these large companies. And they're very open and they're uh, willing to learn. And they're scientists. Like <laughs> exactly. They got uh, the, the scary ones are the people at the top of the company because once they've decided on a commercial strategy, then they tend to be a little bit less friendly and a little less open. But for the moment, it's a very collaborative environment. But speaking of gigantic uh, influentials, you've recently said that there is not a damn thing to, that Justin Sun can tell to Warren Buffett to change his opinion about crypto. So I was actually invited to be in the press conference with Warren Buffett that got canceled. Why do you think that there is nothing that Justin said? Do you think that he, Warren Buffett couldn't be swayed on crypto? Or do you think is that Justin Sun is the wrong person to do it? Well, Warren Buffett is, you know, he's a living representation of Benjamin Graham's value investor book. You know, somewhere along the way, he met Benjamin Graham, read the book, learned everything about it, and embodied that philosophy, and set up Berkshire Hathaway basically to follow that. And if you're in your late 70s, 80s, and you're one of the world's richest men, and you've been following a thesis, you're just not going to deviate from that, you know, because it's made you fabulously wealthy, and there's no data to indicate that you're wrong. And his pattern has always been, get involved in these industries once clear fundamental values been established, business models are established, and then take bets on who can best execute these marketplaces. So for that reason, he avoided in the 90s the dot-com bubble. And at the same time, in the 2000s, came into tech companies and made some great bets there and made a lot of money there. So similarly, he's not going to get involved in crypto until our industry matures, the business models crystallize, it's clear where the value capture is going to be. And then it's just a question of who can best execute. And then there's, that's a fundamental analysis that you do. It's not technical. Uh, and so he'll just apply the same logic that he's applied since, God, what, the 50s or 60s to this and come in. And there's nothing Justin can do to come in and convince Buffett that now it's time to buy a Tron token or something, because it's just not how he thinks. He looks at the entire industry and the entire sector and the key drivers, and it's not even clear if the small guys are going to become big guys or if the big guys are just going to capture the entire industry. Uh, you know, the, there was plenty of SaaS guys who could have become huge guys in the 2000s when cloud computing became big, but they all just got gobbled up and basically became divisions of Oracle and SAP and Microsoft and so forth. So we didn't have the new Microsofts come out of that movement. It was just only a few notable exceptions. Whereas in other cases in the 90s, some of those businesses did become Microsoft size or even displaced Microsoft as a large company. So, you know, it's not clear what's going to happen there. It might be the case that GAFA and IBM eat up our entire industry and we wake up and the consensus is in the Iowa case, we all get swept out like Netscape. 
or it may be the case that IOHK becomes the world's next Microsoft. And Buffett's not going to touch it until he understands the totality of the industry. And then he's going to make an industry-wide bet and then basically bet with the portfolio like he's always done. So it's so not that Warren Buffett thinks that the industry is a scam. It's just that he doesn't have certainty. And it is true. We do not have certainty about who is the winner. The best thing you can do is to diversify. And Warren Buffett famously says, if you have to diversify, you don't understand it. And that technically right. is true, right? And, and another thing, you know, he, he, the guy Warren Buffett is going to ask about crypto is not Justin Sun. It's Bill Gates. They're incredibly good friends. They play bridge together. Bill knows a hell of a lot more about our industry than anybody uh, the Ellison Buffett's network and and Bill himself is is flirting with crypto in many different aspects with through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for regional currencies or better ways of paying out vouchers to farmers and things like that. They you know they're looking into these things. So it, it, you know Buffett already has a very deep bench of people who are incredibly bright who understand our tech just as well as I do or anybody else. And you know he's going to wait until he understands the industry uh, from a, a, a complete holistic way. And then it's just applying the same principles that he's had for 50 plus years on our entire industry. And so that's not going to be a Tron-centric or ADA-centric or Bitcoin-centric. It's going to be industry-centric. And he's going to pick and choose accordingly. And he'll probably end up doing a pretty good job, uh, all things considered. That's why I said it was a, a complete waste of money. I mean, all you're going to do is go to Smith & Walensky, get a nice steak, it's good uh, marketing yeah. <laughs> for Tron. Great marketing for, you know, and, and a coin disc played into it. They wrote a lot of articles. It was almost like The Bachelor. You know, like, who's he yeah, yeah. Oh, I know. It was awesome. <laughs> you know, then you have to ask yourself, well, what, what else could you have done for, I think, what was it, $5 million? I set up an entire R&D program, wrote uh, six papers, and hired 19 full-time engineers and completely formalized the Ethereum virtual machine and created a new virtual machine and developed a, a new model for writing smart contracts for that same amount of money. Uh, so what's more value to the Tron shareholders, to the, uh, to the I Tron? Think it, it, I think it shows the priorities and the value of the cryptocurrency and the system in general. I do think marketing is important because you do want people to get involved. Like that Warren Buffett story got everybody interested, even people who are not into Bitcoin. But at the same time, it kind of puts a question on what is important to your blockchain, to your uh, community, right? Right. And it's, so I just, we just have different philosophies in these things. And I think that at the end of the day, you have to demonstrate your platform provides real value to people before you go out and spend $5 million on a publicity stunt, bring people in. It almost reminds me of uh, the 1990s when we had all those dot-com startups getting Super Bowl commercials and things like that. And the pets.com sock puppet or what it was. And <laughs> they spent so much money on that. And then within two years, they were gone. But maybe, maybe Justin's a genius and he's got it all figured out and it's all about adoption, 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 and you just fake it till you make it. Who knows? I mean, the industry is going to pick its winners and losers and you know, maybe I'll just- How long it. do you think it's going to take before we have the bubble and like, these things figured out until the industry matures? Um, from a technology perspective, we need another three to five years for protocols to solidify for the third generation to really be viable. And we have some great competitors like Algorand and these other guys coming online, which are, are very sharp and led by great teams. And we're all kind of eating each other's dog food. So we're all moving in, in lockstep in that respect. In terms of customer adoption, we have yet to find those killer apps that bring millions of people into our ecosystem. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of them seem to be predicated on gaming and gambling or other things. Maybe that is it. Who knows? Uh, but we haven't had our, uh, our web browser moment, and we're looking for it. But uh, once that comes, it'll probably come in the next five to 10 years, we'll get a substantial population from these platforms. And uh, then the other thing that has to bake in is the regulation has to settle. So we have to understand what the custodial standards are, the insurance side of things are, KYC, ML, and basically how each of our businesses are going to be regulated. And uh, once all that bakes in, I'd say five, 10 years, we'll We'll be where we need to be. And then it's just a question of mass adoption. And my belief and where we've staked our fortunes as a company is mass adoption will occur pan-African. So we feel that Africa will be the fastest adopting of all of the continents for crypto. Oh, really? And that just comes from looking at trends, like look at the growth of M-Pesa and other such things. They grew so quickly. And you know, there's just a situation where you have very young people, like Ethiopia, 70% of the population is at or under the age of 30. And they're all online and, you know, they, they have access to the same information you do or I do. So if you don't like your sovereign currency, you don't like capital controls, you're not, you're not, you don't have a lot of faith in the local government, 
uh, and uh, you're all young, you're in, you're in the market for different financial systems. And well, so, here's a question yeah. for you, because I know like in Iran, again, we have a very young population and people are getting into crypto for that very reason, because the Iranian currency is just going down right. the toilet in terms of value. But guess what? The Iranian government is also getting involved and they started mining Bitcoin and all the other stuff. Right. So what do you think? Like, because the government also has access to all this information. Right. Do you think we're going to be able to find a balance? Well, governments are getting involved. Like China, for example, is the biggest defender there. The People's Bank of China just built its own cryptocurrency and it's part of their long-term solution for social credit. They want to create a single vertical stack of your entire financial life and your entire social life and they put a number on your head and it's almost like a Black Mirror episode. If your number is high, you're a good citizen, you get the good wife, the good job and free train tickets. And if your number is low, well, you just disappear, never to be seen again. Uh, so very dystopian. Uh, you know, in Iran's case, they, they don't get along so well with the United States and all the countries that don't tend to be looking for alternative ways to get liquidity and be able to move money, especially for leadership in those countries. So we see the same thing with North Korea and Russia. And that's why the Petro is, or whatever, the Russians are looking at a, um, a cryptocurrency. And also there's the North Koreans are the largest thief of cryptocurrencies in, uh, in all of Asia. They, there are a lot of the exchange hacks that have occurred in Korea and other places have North Korean fingerprints on them. Uh, so, uh, so, yeah, that's typical to see. And that's just a geopolitical thing. And Venezuela is the same way. Uh, and they're just looking for ways to create liquidity, especially for corruption, you know, stolen money or other such things. But you know, moving beyond that, people do not need to ask permission for their from their government to use cryptocurrencies. And in many cases, it doesn't matter if the government says don't do it, they'll just still do it. A great example would be all of our Ukrainian contractors are paid with Bitcoin because they just they don't want anything else. We offered to pay them in euros or in revnets and things. They always say no. We just want to be paid in Bitcoin. We uh, we really love this and it's great. And it's worked out very well for them because they were getting Bitcoin at two hundred fifty dollars. And so now they're they're much much richer Ukrainians. Um, India is another example where the central bank and the government are actively considering making trading of cryptocurrencies a crime. You could spend 10 years in jail for it. Uh, but, you know, if people in the villages in southern India decide to start using crypto for something, there's not a politician in the world that's going to try to throw them in jail for that. It would cause a revolution. Uh, so, you know, the, I don't think governments at this point have much say, especially poor governments or governments living on the fringes of the world society. Uh, the people are just going to make decisions independently of them. And the reason why the governments and those fringes are using it are, are geopolitical rather than for social reasons. That makes sense. So talking about actually using it, name the last three things you bought purely with crypto. The last three things I bought with crypto. <laughs> you know, I used to be a big fan of this website called BitMix. Bitmit, and it was like eBay for crypto. It was way back in the day, and I bought an Xbox one time with it. I and this was back when Bitcoin was like four dollars. Oh, so man. I I spent 30, 30 Bitcoin. Oh, <laughs> you are the other pizza guy, aren't you? <laughs> exactly. Right. I was just looking at, uh, and I was just looking at that damn Xbox the other day. I kept it. I didn't have the heart to throw it away, and I said, "Well, that's my six hundred thousand dollar Xbox right there." So I could have gotten a Lamborghini for that damn thing. Um, but uh, recently, well, I did, I did book a hotel room with a Bitcoin. And uh, actually, I can get flights with Bitcoin. I do that a lot, cheapair.com. Which airline? Uh, well, cheapair processes Bitcoin payments, so I can get any airline, like United, Air American, or so forth. So it is nice to have those abilities. And, you know, it's, it, we can see. But does the volatility, uh, like, actually scare you? Like, the same thing can happen again. You'll give away your Bitcoins, and the next day, Bitcoin value is got to go up to 100,000. Yeah, you know, I tend not to think too much about it. I've, I was buying Bitcoin back when it was a dollar and, you know, it's gone way up and it's gone way down, but, you know, it, it is what it is. And you, you, sometimes you make good deals, sometimes you make bad deals. So actually enough. another question, sorry, I know you're running out of time. I just want to get all my questions out here. I was interviewing John McAfee the other day and he believes that Bitcoin is going to get to $1 million by 2021, was it December? What do you think of that? John McAfee is a trip. I love that guy. Last time I ran into him with Malta, um, he's a really fun guy to hang out with. So uh, is it going to go to a million dollars? Did he, did he do the dick bet where he said he yeah, was going to Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, he he uh, doubled down on it. It's like, yep, <laughs> as long as national TV broadcasts. So. <laughs> wow, you know, on his boat while fleeing from the authorities. Uh, it's certainly possible. I, when, in my cryptocurrency class, uh, when I created a Bitcoin, it was $4. And so I kind of outlined what it would take to get to 100, 1,000, 10,000, 
what we'd have to look at. Like million dollar Bitcoin would mean that we'd have hundreds of millions of users inside the system and institutional investors have gotten involved heavily and they've taken a strong portfolio position. One of the reasons institutional investors have not taken a large position has been the insurance custodial and regulatory side, but that's getting resolved. Once it is, it's entirely possible that they just, you know, say 3% of our fund will be crypto. And that action alone would bring tens of billions of dollars into our industry. And then there would be an amplification of that. So I could imagine we could get to a multi-trillion dollar market cap collectively for all cryptocurrencies. Now, would that translate to Bitcoin capturing all of that? That's kind of an interesting question, especially if GAFA gets involved, they have their own tokens that are floating around. Um, but I'd say, I, I believe that as our industry grows, Bitcoin will grow and Bitcoin's here to stay permanently. It's the gold standard of our industry. Oh, you so, think, you don't think Bitcoin is gonna get um, outspaced? <laughs> By, uh, not, it's not MySpace, sorry, MySpace. MySpace, like, yeah. it's, it's the least advanced of all of the cryptocurrencies, yet yeah. it's still the strongest. It's just because it has the brand name, it also has the perception that it will well, never I mean, change. what about Bitcoin Cash? It still includes Bitcoin and it's now faster. And Roger Ver, you said that you actually have met him, so. I know Roger well, yeah, and I gotta thank Roger. I made millions of dollars off of Bitcoin Cash. <laughs> <laughs> I'm complaining too much about Bitcoin Cash. Yeah, he's a good guy. Uh, but you know, Bitcoin is still around and actually it's worth significantly more than it was when Bitcoin Cash came out. And I don't think it's lost any users to Bitcoin Cash. I think they both brought in the tent. Roger invested very heavily in bringing people in in Asia and uh, Bitcoin continues to grow as a bellwether of the entire industry. So it is possible it could reach that all time high. I think 2021 is a bit optimistic and we would be in a hyper bubble if we were there. Um, I think rather the price level we're at is probably sustainable if we continue to grow. And, you know, by 2030, 2040, maybe we could reach those levels. But then it also depends on the state of the U.S. economy, the result of the U.S. trade war with China. Right. Like if we actually get into a recession, crypto and stock market have been invertly correlated for a very long time. So that would be for me the catalyst. If we start getting into a recession, people would start looking at Bitcoin as a, as a safety net. Yeah, you know, and that's a great point. And it's, it's just a situation where the global economy does tend to have a direct relationship with Bitcoin. And yeah, they're inversely correlated. So as Bitcoin goes up, it's an indicator that people are fearing a recession and they're looking for a safe harbor currency to go into. And if their confidence in the dollar is weakened, then their confidence in Bitcoin tends to be increased along with gold. At least that's, uh, that's what we'd like to believe. And that's a trend that we've seen. There's a pretty strong correlation there. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of factors. Uh, it also depends on the regulatory environment. You know, if the wrong person wins the election or the right person, like if Andrew Yang somehow pulled out a, a mother of all victories, you know, Bitcoin would probably go to the moon because he's super pro crypto. Whereas, uh, you know, if a guy like Sanders or Elizabeth Warren got in, the regulatory capture would be so vastly increased that uh, people would become very anti-crypto and believe that crypto probably is going to have a lot of trouble, especially with this wealth tax stuff that they're pushing. I, I don't even know how that would be applied in our industry. We have these hyper-thin markets and people are technically worth huge sums of money, but they don't have any liquidity for it. And the minute they sell it, crash the markets. And then suddenly you have built in like a 4% or whatever wealth tax uh, being applied to people and having to divest 4% of their holdings every year. It's crazy. Uh, so, uh, so it just depends a lot on policy, ge geopolitical circumstances, the global economy, uh, and it also depends on where the technology is at and, and also if we get viral adoption. So I think it's an immature or I'd say premature probably is a better term to say that we'll hit a million dollars, but I do think being bullish on the price long term, 10 years, 20 years is quite, uh, quite reasonable. So do you think that Bitcoin cryptocurrency is a good investment for younger generation and not necessarily for those who are retiring and don't have that long-term span of waiting? Well, it's, it's the preferred investment of young people. In fact, there's been numerous surveys done by various consultancies that have shown that people under the age of 25 actually would rather invest in a cryptocurrency than invest in a stock or bond. And I can't tell you how many people I run into who are young that know who I am specifically because of my crypto affiliation. I was just down Colorado Springs and I was at the Cliff Hotel and the valet there actually, when I opened the car, when he opened the car door, he said, well, welcome to the Cliff Hotel, Mr. Hoskinson. And I was like, oh God, wow, this hotel's awesome. They know who I am. And, I, and he knew me from Ethereum. And I said, oh, okay, cool. That's pretty cool too. Well, the freakiest thing though, is I was actually coming into London to Heathrow Airport. The guy at passport control, you know, stamps your passports, was a young dude. And 
he said, welcome to, uh, welcome to England, Mr. Hoskinson. And I was like, oh God, I'm going to get arrested at the airport. The passport control guy knows who I am. Oh, it turns no. out he was a holder. So uh, a lot of young people definitely like cryptocurrencies and it's their preferred investment. Whether it's a good investment or not, you know, that's, that's up for the ages. And if I gave that advice, I'd, I'd be like Steve Cohen or something. I wouldn't be Charles Hoskinson. Um, so I, uh, I, Hello? Oh no. Industry is creating much more diversified assets. For example, we're creating security tokens and tokens representing commodities and so forth. So in many ways, it's a simulacrum of the existing markets, but it's just global instead of local. And it doesn't have middlemen or brokers or these things. As for older people, it's the same what Warren Buffett used to say, uh, only invest in things you understand. And there's just a humongous in time investment you have to put in to understand the basics of this industry. So uh, frankly, it's not a very desirable investment in my view for the elderly. There's a high probability they'll get scammed or lose their funds. And, uh, and it, but that said, managed accounts can come in and once third parties- No, 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 let's not say that. <laughs> I'm against managed accounts. <laughs> I teach people. I, I, I don't want to get a third party involved for the same exact reason. Yeah, I well, there you go. And it you know, also depends on incentives. Do they make money selling you something or make money right. based on the percentage of the money you make? I mean, especially I feel like with crypto, because it's so illiquid that they could totally take advantage of the amounts that they, the sums that they get and move the markets in their desired direction and then just, then just dump you. So I'm sorry to interrupt you there, but I just, this is something that I do feel strongly about. Well, I, I prefer people be educated from people like you and, and make an informed decision rather than handing your money to somebody else to manage it. Um, okay, before we get down, I want to just ask you some quick, fun questions. You sure. grew up in Hawaii. Yes, ma'am, and I'm on the island of Maui. Oh, that's where we got married. We got married on Pi Day. So I'm an electrical engineer, by, by the way. My husband is an actual rocket scientist. We're crazy about numbers. We got married on the Pi Day of the century, um, you know, 15, 3, 14, 15, and we cut our cake on the next digits in Maui. So wow. tell us, if we were to run into you when you were a teenager in Maui, what would we, what would we see? How have you changed? <laughs> I left Maui when I was eight years old, so I would have been quite young. I, I grew up in Colorado, but I was born on Maui. Uh, I was like any other kid, I, and I was a, like any other Hawaiian kid. I was running around barefoot with shorts on, long, uh, long blonde hair that turned brown somehow, and uh, and uh, I, I was I just became a local, you know, hanging out with the Jackson chameleons and the tropical birds and all the other things. I love Maui; it's a beautiful place. It is absolutely beautiful. Now you live in Colorado. You have a 50-acre horse ranch outside in Colorado, don't you? Yeah, Longmont. Yeah, it's great. I got horses, mini goats. I got geese. I get fresh uh, eggs every day for my chickens. Got four dogs. Uh, life, is, life is good. Do you attribute your success to the horses or the horses came after the success? A horse is a horse, of course, right? My grandfather actually grew up in Montana, and he had uh, he lived in Miles City, Montana, and he he did everything. He was a smoke jumper. He was a doctor, a brilliant guy, and he had horses on his ranch. But I didn't get horses until after I got rich. Uh, it's one of those things that is a luxury of life, and you know you can't really afford it until you can afford it. And so I uh, I have a lot of luxuries I've picked up. For example, from your region of the world, like uh, these are tablets from Babylon. Oh, uniform wow. tablets. So, what, you know, what tablets are the? Oh my goodness! All right, we would have to visit that office. That just, just that just looks fantastic. Like the amount of stuff that you have. That you right, can you, can start, eBay. you can start randomly pulling things out. Like, like for example, this is pretty cool too. I collect roses that have been lacquered and then dipped in gold. So maybe you can see that. Oh my so this God. is actually a real rose, and what they do is they go through like a 12-stage process, and then at the end of it, it ends up being coated in gold. So you can actually see the veins in it like that. So I, I developed a lot of collections, and these were things I always wanted to get, but I didn't get until after I became successful in the cryptocurrency space. That is definitely a motivation right there and then. So you have collected all these things, but you do not have a blue verified check mark on your Twitter account, and neither do I. <laughs> I know How Jack. do you survive without that? <laughs> you know, it's a vanity game at the end of the day. And, uh, you know, some people, 
they have these things that they use to verify themselves, uh, to validate themselves. And they say, oh, because I have this, I'm great. If I lost everything, I mean, I, look, look at Ethereum. I, I, uh, you know, we, I left and I didn't have anything when I left Ethereum. And, you know, I wasn't a big guy and nobody cared about me. And I said, well, who cares? I'm just going to go build another company and have some fun and you know, see where it goes and see where I can take it. Uh, so yeah, I think people get too caught up in titles and credentials and, and I have a blue check mark and this other person doesn't. Just be a good person and do interesting things and build interesting things. And it all sorts itself out at the end of the day. That, that is a fabulous way to end this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we, I'm sure everybody just absolutely enjoyed every a bit of wisdom that you threw out there. And the viewers um, in the house, just ask your questions down here, uh, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, you probably are going to be kind enough to answer the questions. Uh, Charles, thank you so much again for joining me on View on the Block. And viewers at the home, we'll see you again in the next episode. This was a lot of fun, Charles, before we go, um, we also ask our guests to uh, make a silly face. <laughs> Just the fun of it. Okay. Ah, oh, I love it. All right, that was perfect. The first take, we got it. Thank you so much, Charles. And I hope I'll uh, see you again on social media with our non-verified Twitter account. <laughs> I know Jack personally, you know. I, and he How follows. come he hasn't verified you? It's crazy. I know. I, I like PM'd him and talked to him. I've run into him and he will not verify. He's like, oh, well, if I do it for you, I have to do it for everybody. Bitcoin and crypto. Yeah, I'm sure that happens to you probably a thousand times more than me. Yeah. It's just not good. You got to talk to Jack. We'll figure it out. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun.